Welcome to the Financial Intelligence Podcast number two with Justin Spencer Young and Sean Temlett. In podcast number one, Sean and I laid out a broad picture of what we intend to explore in future Financial Intelligence Podcasts. The Financial Intelligence Podcast has three driving principles. Those are free markets, limited government, and value creation. In today's conversation, we'll explore the principle of free markets, and we also talk about how this goes hand in hand with competition. We touch on the principle of limited government, and at various stages through the podcast, we outline some of the topics that we intend to cover in the near future. Enjoy your listening. So, Shawnee, we were talking around our different tracks where I'm very much a more equities-orientated trading and markets-orientated, and you're in the fixed property space. And I want to check in with you around what role does having a free market play in your ability to operate in that property space? A lot of free market thinking originated in the market of property, in the, in the property sector. I don't know the exact date, but it was around about 17th, 18th century London where rent control was introduced. It's quite a famous story, actually, because the intention of, of rent control was very noble, and that was to make housing affordable for people in the center of town, so around town, so that they could get to work. It, makes, it made a lot of sense. But the unanticipated consequence was almost 180 degree opposite to that. And the reason for that was that it was a disincentive for the supply of property. And so I think classic economics attempts to make a very strong case for free markets because free markets are required in order to provide an adequate reward for taking risk in order to generate supply. In this case, it would be the supply of housing units in London. And of course, then the, if you don't have the supply, the natural consequence is that, that the cost goes up if the demand goes up. And so unfortunately in London, what happened was that that property in London has never been able to restore itself to an equilibrium and the prices today are unimaginably high and exclude the vast majority of people from living, living anywhere near London itself. So the lesson there, I think, is, a, is, is still quite simple and that is that the best way of incentivizing supply and demand is to allow the market the freedom to find a sense of equilibrium. Now, has that led to rampant capitalism and disparity between the haves and the have-nots? You know, I mean, I think there's a strong argument that there is, to some extent, those sorts of things have happened. But another argument is that as governments around the world try and either regulate or, or do effectively create a rent control, what they really do is they create pockets of inefficiency particularly between supply and demand. And for a period of time, it looks like the market is not playing its role. And in fact, the regulator is playing its role. And then what happens is there's a big correction later. I mean, we've seen this here in South Africa in our medical industry. The law of supply and demand has been tinkered with many, many times. Medicine Control Act changes one, two, three changing of regulation, single exit pricing models on pharmaceuticals, etc. And if you look at the actual numbers, the cost of staying healthy and the cost of staying in the hospital in South Africa is exorbitantly high for private medical. And the quality for people that are on non-private 
is increasingly questionable. So I think one can make an argument that wherever possible, one would like to see less regulatory government mandate. I call it government light because I suppose we do need some protections, but then they are protections and not necessarily controls. And I don't, I'd like to make a distinction between those two if possible. That was very valuable. What I heard was the hand of government putting their control, putting their influence on the system, allowed government to control the price that medicines are sold at in South Africa or certainly control the margin that the pharmacy earns so that supposedly uh, medicine is more easily accessible. What those sorts of interventions do is they then have an impact on supply. And then we can inject the role of entrepreneurs because the, the more entrepreneurial the society is, the more entrepreneurs will find the pockets of opportunity in that, let's call it a, a value chain. So if you look at property in London in the 17th and 18th century, entrepreneurs let on that. If the rent is set at 100, what do you do? You make the apartment smaller, less services, less maintenance, less capital investment. And so the slums, and I would argue that the slums are still here with us today because of that. On the one hand, government would like to think that it can control and understand economy and the levers thereof. What it doesn't allow for is the dynamic nature of entrepreneurial thinking. So the rules that were, which enabled the government to make some sort of a policy, those rules are continually being rewritten by the entrepreneurial mindset. And so how do you respond to that? You have to be more flexible. You have to be more dynamic. And I'm not convinced that governmental institutions are flexible and dynamic enough to be as responsive as the entrepreneurial responses are. Can you see a tension between those two, Justin? Yes, I definitely can. The, the entrepreneur comes with flexibility, speed of thought, and also speed of capital to flow into the space where the opportunity exists. And government regulation can never respond fast enough in order to control how the system morphs as it develops. So what, what ends up happening is when government comes with policy with the best intention, the policy is broad, it's cumbersome, and it, it can't deal with the problem in a very specific way. It just ends up creating a problem elsewhere. It leads us to plenty of room for conversation around Eskom as the sole energy supplier in South Africa. It leads us to a conversation around government's responsibility to deliver water in, in the Western Cape. Solving the water problem in the Western Cape has become just a government problem to be solved, whereas the free market might be really creative in solving that problem. And, I mean, that's just a really fertile space for, for conversation. I think there's two things very importantly that have come up in, in what you've said. The one I would put in under the heading of competition, even the most efficient, well-thought-through government policies and so forth will result in price increases if they drive out competition. Let's use an example of low-cost airlines. Low-cost airlines and airlines generally are, are regulated in different ways. Now, I can argue very firmly that South Africa has no low-cost airlines. 
And the culprit is governments throttling the access to airports. You cannot run a low-cost airline unless you have an airport or a landing partner who's going to work with you to make that business model work. And so South Africans and Africans, and the numbers are startling here, if you look at the cost of traveling by aircraft across Africa and compare it almost with any other landmass in the world, you will see the premium that travelers are paying to move around Africa. And the reason for that is lack of competition. Not so much between the airlines, but the lack of competition between different business models. And herein lies, I think, a very rich vein of conversation between us. The diversity, the flexibility, the, the combination of risk and reward that comes with different, mo- different business models, the kinds of companies that can then fulfill those business models, and then the complacency or inertia that then is developed, and it translates often into premium pricing, but not with improvement in quality. And that's unfortunately, is what's happened with airlines, particularly, I think, in South Africa, where there is, there is a price, but it's not a low-cost price. And it can't be a low-cost price because the business model that's available in South African aircraft travel is only one business model, and that is the old business model. Ask yourself, in every decision that's made and every policy that's put in place, does it increase the competition vertically? between business models, and does it increase the competition horizontally between players on the same business model? That is a worthwhile conversation. I think it's a fantastic conversation, and I think what you've introduced here is this this thing around the business model, and the business model has so many parts to it. It's who is the owner of the asset? Who gets to use the asset? What's your frequency of use of the asset? What's the cost structure of using the asset? And I love your, your analogy about the cost of travel in Africa. There was a time when measured on a cost per kilometer, flying from O.R. Tambo to Victoria Falls was the most expensive flight in the world. Gee, it's, you know, it's not pretty far, but the reason why it becomes so expensive is because you're flying from O.R. Tambo, which is essentially an airport owned by the government, Airports company, South Africa, it has a shareholder who's the government. There's no flexibility about where aircraft can land in South Africa, really, if they're flying to Johannesburg. So OR Tambo is the only choice, and that's what you spoke about with having flexibility around airports. And then, of course, on the other side, landing in Zimbabwe at Victoria Falls Airport, there's all sorts of, the term that we use is rent-seeking. Then what happens is Zambia says, well, hey, Let's put an airport here in Livingston, which is how far? 20 kilometers from Victoria Falls. You would think, why would you need to have an airport there? But of course, it's a different country. And we'll make it far easier to land and get through the airport and we'll make it cheaper. And what happens? We'll just divert the traffic away from Zimbabwe. We'll come to Zambia and we'll, and we'll do it on this side of the border. So there's a, there's a little bit of competition coming into play because there's an airport right next door that has a different business model. Zambia has recognized the opportunity. So that's where different countries are competing. But we would see the same thing at a local level in South Africa. If you want to fly to Durban, there's only one airport you can fly to. 
And my argument is, why not use another airport? Why not fly there? Why not create the opportunity for the market to decide where it actually wants to go to? Yet here we see the hand of government getting in the way of the free market. It's happening in two places. It's happening in the place because it has a huge airline investment and it owns the airports and it wants to get some sort of rent back from those. The conversation that we can explore is, is what would need to happen for the market to be become more free and more open if we sold these airports to private investors and if South African Airways was privatized. So there's a whole conversation there about privatization and government owned and what's better for South Africa. There's rich material there for our podcast. So I guess financial intelligence kind of morphs into how the market responds, how government responds, how companies make money in this space. And that can seem quite highbrow. So I do want to maybe direct our conversation to more accessible type conversations that we might need to have for members of our audience. I'm finding that transition quite difficult now because you've sparked so many economic thoughts for me just in terms of what is, you know, when you we're talking about flying into Zimbabwe to get Big Falls versus Zambia, etc. What came up for me was the, the power of narrow economic interests and how often we see this in negotiations where people will negotiate for their own narrow economic interest, even though the opportunity for collaboration will create enormous new value, which far surpasses what any individual narrow interest could possibly be. What you're saying is there's this Victoria Falls, which is a geographic element, and that's the interest. And if there was collaboration around how do we extract value from tourists who want to come to Victoria Falls versus the interest of Zimbabwe and the interest of Zambia, that's where you're going with that, am I right? Exactly. And, and so that's a country, that's a country collaboration where the market would be prepared to pay X billion dollars, they are squabbling over Y million dollars. There's lots of lessons in that vein, uh, which we need to come back to uh, from time to time. So I'm freewheeling here as you're promoting different thoughts in my mind. And this kind of stems along the airline argument as well. Here we have this, this gem of a tourism opportunity in Cape Town, where the world wants to come and see this new, one of the new seven wonders of the world being Table Mountain. And we have an airline called South African Airways that does not fly direct routes from London to Cape Town. So what's coming up for me is there's clearly no collaboration here between South African tourism, the airline, let's call it home affairs, so that people can get into the country from a tourist point of view with more ease. So then British Airways is like dominating this route and maybe even other airlines flying out of Europe directly into Cape Town. And our own airline is not in this space. It makes, it makes me think that value creation in South African airways is not the objective. The objective is, might be creating jobs. It might be the ego related to the national carrier where clearly there are other companies and airlines that can do this far better once we allow the price to be market-orientated, once we take the hand of government out of this 
and we let the the dynamics of competition take over. Well, maybe it it introduces even perhaps even more sinister thought for me, which is narrow political interest. I don't think it's politically attractive for the government of the day to to aid and abet economic and other development and growth in the Western Cape. It certainly hasn't been high on the agenda to help with gang-related crime and so forth down here. We see the policing you know, under incredible pressure and unable to, to make an impact on, on crime when, it, when really crime is, is really the biggest destroyer of tourism, whether you have the planes or not. And so my worry is that, and come full circle here, is the role of government. There's government with good intention, and in, and, I, and I'm also going to bring in the, the, the sense of political competition here as well. You know, I think there are governments around the world that are trying to, to be efficient and to make uh, rules, regulations, and policy, which, which is stimulatory. And then, and then you've drawn our attention to what's going on in the Western Cape, both in terms of water management, uh, safety and security, and other things like that. And the, the question that I'm often asked is, how does that play out in the longer term? And I have to go back to my initial sense, and that is that entrepreneurs will enter into the space because space will be created. The analogy that comes up for me is when you're navigating a river with a canoe, it's one thing to navigate the natural obstacles, the eddies, the white water caused by the flow of the water. But when you put a man-made obstacle in the way, it creates all sorts of turbulence and it's often unnatural. But the entrepreneurs come into that space and they take that unnatural turbulence, they take that, they turn it into disruption and they make something happen. And that can be both, both positive or negative. If you think about crime here in the Western Cape, the space that's created by narrow political uh, interest is being filled up by drug lords and all sorts of other things. I suspect that the same is going to happen with water, that entrepreneurs will step into that space and that we will find that we are buying water that was government water that's now coming back to us via private sources. And I'm afraid, unfortunately, all of these things require an attitude and a security of understanding or interest that allows competition to flourish that you don't have to be the single, the only airline flying on a particular route, that competition is what eventually brings about efficiency and lower costs. And I think, it, I think those principles apply in, in almost every example that we've raised today. I agree with you that they definitely do. I'm kind of getting hairs on the back of my neck or standing up thinking that politics will enter the conversation when we talk financial intelligence in any market, uh, certainly in South Africa. Politics of the Western Cape being a DA-run region, but the politics of the country being dominated by the ANC is a reason not to direct flights into Cape Town or is a reason not to ensure that the safety and security of the Western Cape is properly managed. Because I guess in a way, maybe both of those things have the effect of undermining the DA. And I'm going to, I'm going to segue into, into the, the government policy of the supply of water in the Western Cape. 
my understanding around the policy is that only government is allowed to supply bulk water. Free market can supply water bottled that you go and buy in the shop. That's fine. But my sense is if the free market was given the opportunity to supply bulk water to residents in the Western Cape, you would see many, many creative solutions appearing to the extent that you might just end up seeing a a massive column of trucks, water tankers, bringing water from multiple other sources around the country into Cape Town to supply the market. And the price of water will go through the roof and people will use less. You know, and the free market will be allowed to do its thing. It's ironic that as government will try and protect those channels, all they do is eventually staving off a, an even bigger disruption. I think if you look at if you look at Eskom, Eskom's got a lot of interesting examples for us there, where you know we, they they said let's throttle back the demand as a way of trying to stave off the the outages that we had all those years ago. And so, again, the entrepreneurial innovativeness of people is that we went off the grid. Much of that demand is not going to come back. And then what we're going to see is an overshoot with Eskom in terms of their ability to supply that energy. So much to discuss. What our challenge will be in future podcasts is, I think, being more specific around, right, this is the subject matter of today. And all of what we've spoken about today, we've kind of freewheeled, we've gone into all these different places areas of interest that will have an impact on one's financial intelligence, but we're going to be far more focused in looking at specifics that relate to financial intelligence. The natural one that comes up for me from this whole discussion is to what extent the um, retirement industry is able to hide behind the financial services acts and regulations because my sense is that it's a bit like single exit pricing from a pharmaceutical perspective. It just meant that all the profits moved somewhere else. So instead of the profits being in the distributive pharmacies, the profits are now sitting in the manufacturers. In fact, the irony is that in the old days, the pharmacists were getting together and negotiating better prices from the manufacturers. They might not have been passing that price on to the consumer, but at least it kept 5,000 pharmacists in business. So today we only have 2,000 pharmacists, but the value in the chain is the same, but that profit has just moved back into the manufacturer because there's no incentive to negotiate. I'm interested that you said 2,000 pharmacists because in my mind we only have two. We have clicks and risk Because what's happened is there's, there's been this mass consolidation in that sector, hasn't it? Because... The pharmacy, as we know it, on the street corner can't survive on a single exit price. Correct, correct. So I was being generous there, I guess. Now, so here's where I would like us to have more detailed conversation. If you take the same approach to the costs of investing, what are those artificial barriers that have been put in the way and how do they impact on the, the, the miracle of compounding, either positively or negatively? And what are the alternatives for somebody like my daughter, who's a young doctor, who's been bombarded by people who I think whose existence is there because of these regulations? In other words, if you want to buy a retirement product, you have to buy it in this way from these people. And these are the single exit prices that have been negotiated, regardless of the performance. And where do those assets end up? 
what, what intelligence is really applied to those decisions? And is my daughter not smart enough to make some of those decisions herself? So I have no doubt that she is smart enough to make those decisions herself. And I think the conversation that we're going to have around this is going to be controversial because it will be my intention to be controversial here because I think this financial services market is a, an opportunity to fleece the consumer because of those very things that you spoke about earlier around Tanya being, she's busy, she's a doctor, she's at Barrow, she's saving lives. And therefore, not focusing on her retirement is going to be the reason why she falls into some default retirement annuity product where someone is making money on her ignorance. And my intention is to have a very frank conversation around how we can do this for ourselves and cut out this entire market that is fleecing us with fees. So I look forward to that conversation and maybe that will be uh, our next podcast. Well, folks, that's the end of our show for today. Thank you for listening to us. If you want to find Sean and I, you can find us on Twitter at JustinSY00 and at Sean Temlet. Please give us some feedback and any suggestions that you think may improve our show. As a call to action, maybe you know someone else who's looking for some financial intelligence. Maybe you think they'll benefit from the material that you've heard here today or from some future material. Send them to our podcast, give them a listen, and let's build our community. That's us for today. Over and out.